0: I'll tell you, if there's one thing I know is that I love quality research and, and you know what, there's a real need for it, and especially in some important areas. So I want to flash back just for a moment, uh, back to May of 2021, looking on Substack and looking at Doomberg and going, oh, what are these guys all about? Well, I'll tell you what they're all about and what they've proven to be about is understanding and giving us some uh, early warnings about supply chain problems, for example. Uh, But for me, it was when they started to talk about food and fertilizer and the relationship uh, with an expertise, though, that I think was sorely needed. Uh, They've been talking about energy, uh, water crisis. Uh, All of that was early days uh, before the sort of mainstream analytical community, let alone the mainstream media, caught up to them. Well, that's why I'm so pleased to have Doomberg on with me today. We've been looking forward to this for months uh, to get him on with us. Doomberg, thanks for finding time.
1: Hey, Michael, really fantastic to be here. Big fans of your show. And um, like you said, this has been long in the making, and I know it's going to be a robust discussion that I I personally am very much looking forward to having.
0: Well, I mean, every day there's more stuff happening. And by the way, I'll tell people, I'll give the address, uh, you know, you can find Dunberg also on Twitter, and he keeps up to date. The group, the team keeps up to date on all that's happening, and there is so much happening. And uh, I'm going to start with energy because – Obviously, that's been a big topic, and food, I'm getting to that too, don't worry everyone, Uh, and fertilizer and the challenges, they're so interrelated, but you know, I look at the changes already, look at what's happened in the UK, I thought it was the first glimmer of hope actually coming out of the UK with the new Prime Minister actually talking increasing supply, talking nuclear power, and so I thought I'd start with an optimistic note, what did you take of that?
1: I think, you know, we get asked all the time from our subscribers and and our clients in our consulting business, um, what are the milestones that we're looking for for a turning point? And today is about as close as we could think of one. You know, there's a few other milestones like restarting the large natural gas field um, in the Netherlands or perhaps Germany getting serious about its nuclear power plants and not only... Um, postponing the scheduled close of the three remaining reactors, but bringing it back online, the three that they have turned off um, just at the end of last year. But I think um, the new prime minister's uh, message today and tone, um, it it was sort of uh, looked at some aspects of her proposals that we think are suboptimal, but are probably necessary from a political expediency lens. But by and large, she's taking an all of the above approach for energy production, natural gas, um, both offshore and um, fracking, um, nuclear bill- proposing to have twenty five percent of the of the country's nuclear power come uh, electricity come from nuclear power <clears throat> in a short period of time. Um, th- th- even if many of these things are opposed and don't come to pass, I think the optics themselves and the sort of the turning of the conversation in the right direction shouldn't sure. be underestimated. I still think the continent of Europe has a long ways to go before they confront reality. Um, Having said that, things are moving at such a pace that it might be weeks instead of months or might be months instead of years. Um, But um, I concur with your assessment. We put out a tweet to this effect earlier this morning. This announcement out of the UK um, could very well be a turning point in the crisis. We certainly hope it is.
0: Let me back up for a second and just get your take on, I, I've been flabbergasted by how many bad decisions have been made. I've been flabbergasted by the, uh, you mentioned the word reality. And and I'm seriously, I, I, there's one thing to have a different ideological bent. It's quite something else to not understand that wind and solar are intermittent energy. You know, what I mean, That's, we're so fundamental in the mistakes. How did we get into this mess?
1: You know, we. Um, it's a great question, first of all. Um, and it's something we have been writing about for a long time, as you mentioned in your introduction, which was very kind. We wrote a piece in the fall of last year, I believe, called um, "Coking Coal Has a Branding Problem," where we um, we we relayed this amazing interaction between then uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the you know climate editor of the BBC, where they were arguing about whether uh, a certain coal mine should be authorized, and it's very clear that neither of them knew that this was a coking coal mine instead of a thermal coal mine. And they were discussing about the impacts on the electricity grid of whether or not this mine would go forward. And I'm sure your audience knows coking coal is used to make steel. It's not burned to make electricity. And this whole affair got blown up in the media and um, not, we couldn't find anywhere where people pointed out this, this absurdity that um, the prime minister of England or the prime minister of the UK um, and, and the climate editor of the BBC had no idea what they were talking about uh, on such a simple matter as the difference between coking coal and thermal coal. And, and given our extensive background in the commodity sector, you know, from industry with real practical experience running P in the energy sector, understanding the investment time horizons and what's truly needed to power the economy and to ensure a, a healthy standard of living for the humans in our society, uh, we're just sort of flabbergasted by that. And so I think the genesis of this is legitimately. Um, we have grown too comfortable um, in our society. We've become too distant from the people and the technologies that actually power it. And we've had the luxury of, of bathing in platitudes um, because in the past two decades, we've lived in a, a period of relative energy excess. And, and with sort of the COVID shutdown and the, the, the bankruptcies in the shale patch and, and the lack of investment because of the ESG defund movement, um, we are now living in a period of, of energy um, shortages. And, and the luxuries of such platitudes are just um, unacceptable now. We need to get serious again. And, and as we just said, I think the new prime minister's um, um, speech this morning uh, was a very positive sign in that regard. And, and nobody would like uh, more than us to have this problem be resolved uh, in a positive way.
0: One of the things uh, you've been writing about and focusing on when it comes to the energy file is that, you know, this coming winter uh, may be the pivotal event of, of in decades, you know, uh, the last several decades and going forward. I mean, how they actually handle the energy shortages. And uh, you were mentioning, OK, so the, if that's a at least a checkmark against the UK, you know, we've seen some reluctance. Uh, you know, Germany, for example, saying, OK, well, we're not going to close all three nuclear plants uh, we'll keep two of them open uh, till April. You know, I mean, just sort of an inkling of sort of realism there. But it seems to me we've got a long way to go before there's uh, even an appreciation. There's an actual emergency going on.
1: So it's worse than that, Michael. Um, what they're proposing is that they will close one permanently on December 31st. They will close the other two on December yeah. 31st. But they will keep close them in a way that maintains the optionality to bring them back online um, at least until you know the end of April, which is essentially—it's um, just—it's nonsense. Let's just call it what it is. Even Governor Gavin Newsom in California has realized that it probably would be a good idea to extend his last remaining nuclear power plant in the state, Diablo Canyon, um, at least through 2030, um, and and that was probably front-running what he knew to be the rolling blackout crisis that is about to uh, engulf the state today. Um, how stupid would it look um, for, for Newsom to be um, insisting that 10 percent of the electricity in the state be taken offline um, when the state is in the midst of a rolling blackout crisis because of the um, summer heat wave? Um, and so even Gasm, Gavin Newsom can see it. Um, so Germany is to the left of, of the California Democrats, uh, if that gives you a sort of a sense of where they would lie on the, on the political spectrum.
0: Well, and now we've got, of course, uh, you know, the big news uh, that you guys reported on and, and did some stuff on was, you know, uh, when they start talking about capping Russian energy prices, immediately Russia responds, as, as uh, you guys at Doomberg predicted, but says, OK, well, then we're not going to sell you any oil. And uh, I, I just look at this kind of stuff where you get the G7, you know, and that includes Canada, you know, US, of course, and, you know, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK saying we're going to cap energy prices, uh, the absurdity of, the, of that, and I thought maybe I, I'd get you just to sort of elaborate a little bit. I mean, I looked at that and uh, I needed a neck brace because my head was shaking so hard.
1: It's—it's. It's, we described it as perhaps the, the least serious slash most foolish policy proposal that we've ever come across. Um, in their delusion, the G7 leaders think they can dictate to three to four billion of the world's population Uh, what they should pay for property that does not belong to the G7. Um, As though Justin Trudeau, who we've been very critical of, as I'm sure you know, um, can tell India what it should pay for Russian oil, um, or tell China what it should pay for Russian oil. And by the way, it it screams of a complete and total lack of relevant experience in the commodity sector, because all this is going to do is enrich the uh, black market participants and the traders, and that oil is going to find its way to the market Um, that it's laughable to think that the G7 leaders have convinced themselves that because they currently hold a relative monopoly on insurance and the insurance of maritime seagoing vessels, that somehow this will prevent the world from getting its much needed oil, as though India and China and Russia can't just insure these vessels themselves. Um, If you think insurance is more of a moat than the jewels needed to power your society uh, and to maintain social order, You're just you're deluding yourself. Um, It's obscene. It's it's a joke. It lays bare the sort of uh, intellectual bankruptcy of the G7, the slate of G7 leaders that we have right now. You know, we kind of were a little hard on Janet Yellen in our last piece, um, you know, Europe on the brink. But she's only ever worked at the Fed or uh, in a university uh, and a brief uh, stint at a think tank. I mean, uh, what does she know? About how the world really works, uh, we said, you know, uh, what does she know about the real world, a place she surely has never visited? Um, <laughs> this 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 can only have come uh, from a cocktail party. Uh, it's that unserious. Like um, our geopolitical enemies are laughing at us. And by the way, when we when we write to critique these policies, um we don't do so um, to mock our leaders. We do so to try and um, inform them that there's a better path for um, it. I, we have, as you can imagine, hundreds of contacts in the commodity sector, given our decades of experience in the space. And uh, we can't find one who understands how this uh, price cap is meant to work in practice. Uh, it's, it's laughed at. Um, people roll their eyes. Um, these are the same people that these governments are counting on to invest uh, in new production. And they look at this unserious slate of, uh, of uh, leaders who were born on third base and thought they hit a triple like Trudeau. Um, And uh, they just shake their heads, uh, like, yeah, we're not going to risk billions of dollars to bail you out of a political problem that you solved, uh, that you created, sorry. Um, And so, yeah, it's just obscene. It's literally the most absurd thing we've ever seen. Um, It's predestined to fail. And um, it it, it has real consequences. It, It makes us look unserious
0: it reminds me of the same kind of miscalculation with the initial uh, implementation of the sanctions where i mean i and i can, i'm proud to say we talked about it immediately first of all sanctions have never caused regime change that i could find you know uh, cuba would have 19 different leaders by now if that had worked uh but it was more than that it's like i i've lived in india so i thought are you kidding me giving them a choice between uh no energy so there's no development it's the same mistake that uh, they've made at the uh, climate fests, you know, completely ignoring the, the different states of the world. And they're not going to take Russian oil. I mean, and that was just one example. It's like the West doesn't control the world uh, consumption or the world demand. And I see this again. It's just sort of this delusion about, about their le- relative level of power.
1: Well, and we were very early with the same conclusion. Um, and I think anybody with five minutes worth of experience in the commodity sector knows that you cannot reduce um, your competitors revenue by trying to take their volume off the market, especially when they are a major swing producer um, in the export markets like Russia. Um, price elasticity of demand of commodities is such that in our wildest dreams, if we were as successful as the, as the sanctions hoped to be, let's just do a thought experiment. We take 50% of Russia's oil off of the international markets. We, we, we do a naval blockade. We blow up some export terminals. We, we you know, pick your favorite. If we took half of his volume off of the international markets, the price of oil would weigh more than double and he would end up with more revenue on the 50% of his volume remaining than he uh, would have gotten. If we just left it, let it go to the market. And so, um, the only way to hurt somebody's revenue, which is what we did, by the way, when we had the first Gulf war is you flood the market with energy. This inelasticity works both ways. And so if there is a slight excess of product, the price collapses. That's how you hurt his revenue. You drill baby drill. Trudeau commits to making LNG export terminals. We approve the Keystone pipeline. We uh, fast track federal permits to extract more oil and gas. Um, We do what the prime minister of the UK did this morning. You at least signal that this is what you intend to do. You take the The risk premium out of the market there's a huge risk premium at least there was um in the oil market still exists in the natural gas market uh especially for lng exports um if we just job owned it in the right way as opposed to thinking that we could somehow um hurt his revenue by stinting his volume it's just it it, it's so nonsensical that it it defies belief that uh, we couldn't get anybody with more qualifications than what we have uh in the ears of the people of power
0: yeah, and I agree completely that what you're saying about uh, the UK, you know, re- recent announcement, at least it's the first time somebody was talking about supply, like opening up North Sea oil. You watch the opposite reaction in the States. I mean, the climate agenda still dominates. They don't want to be seen to increasing. Uh, you know, oil or, or natural gas production, and then you've got this ludicrousness. They've learned nothing about this, at least the timetable. I mean, I don't even want to get into the big debate about renewables, and of course, they need a lot of fossil fuels to get that transition. But it's also the timetable's ridiculous, and it's like they've learned nothing.
1: Yeah, it, it really, it really is um, quite something. You know, I, I, I will say, um, the the markets are forward looking, and. Um, The recent price action uh, in Europe coming off of that blow off top uh, I think has caused a real panic in the capitals around Europe. I think um, the sort of rolling bailouts of the electricity producers, um, it was a real eye-opener about how fast all of these things could uh, unravel. Um, And um, there was also a lot of stress on the European banks. I mean, let's, let's be clear who are the counterparties on all of these margin calls um, some estimates as high as 1.5 trillion dollars um, you know the counterparties to these margin calls are the banks and the banks don't have 1.5 trillion of equity i can assure you um, and so we were looking at a, a very close analogy to um, the global financial crisis and, uh, and we were reminded of um, the time where um, you know the, the US treasury committed to not bailing out any banks and in um, hank paulson committed to not bailing out any banks uh, in new York on a on a Sunday, um, I think Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy on a Monday morning. And by Thursday, they were, bank- they were bailing out AIG uh, to save the rest of the banks on Wall Street because the contagion was that quick. Um, this is a real serious crisis in Europe. Um, there, by the way, like people are like, oh, they're going to make it through the winter and, and you're being too alarmist. Uh, well, we, we've been writing about this for a year. And yes, we expect that most citizens in Europe will survive the winter. Let's be clear. Uh, but this does not mean there will not be extraordinary economic wreckage, massive recession, um, businesses you know shutting their doors. like this is real harm to real people. Um, the elites in Brussels uh, might do just fine their heat will stay on. Um, but this is a real serious issue and I think last weekend's um, sort of eruption uh, that didn't really make the news to the extent that it probably should have um, really opened the eyes of some of the leaders in Europe, and, uh, and I think uh, the prime minister's statement today is, as we have mentioned many times, um, the first positive sign in that regard.
0: Uh, it's interesting the financial repercussions and I'm glad you're bringing it up but people should appreciate the the banking problem that this will create and plus the bailouts I mean what Finland at 10 billion I think it was uh, you know that in government in UK they are talking about 130 billion dollar package another 40 billion for small business I mean that list I can just keep talking here you know Sweden 23 billion everybody's doing this well, of course, that money doesn't exist. They're just literally creating it. And I'm thinking of the long-term viability or, or repercussions, let's say, uh, on the euro to start with, but the banking system globally. It's, I'm just pointing out that the ripple effect of this stuff goes beyond I can't heat my home.
1: Yes, of course. And, um, and we would argue that the catastrophe that we have been warning about is already here. Um, mm. Will it get worse from here or not? Perhaps. Um, but um, when you're talking about uh, in the U.K., five percent of GDP as a bailout. I mean, that's a big number. I mean, it's unthinkable, um, much bigger than the bazooka that Hank Paulson had to um, bring to bear in the global financial crisis to uh, snuff out that um, run on the bank. Um, this is this is a big deal. Um, and it already has occurred. It was predictable. We predicted it. You predicted it. Many predicted it. Um, the <laughs> same framework that we use to predict it should be the framework that we use to lead ourselves out of it because it's ultimately just physics like um, there's no denying that um, the number of joules that you can harness dictates the integrated standard of living of your society Um, the more energy you get to waste the higher your standard of living Um, if we're going to accept that um, as an axiom society should um, try to minimize the number of, of co2 emissions we're putting into the atmosphere Um, we should not forget the numerator, which is the standard of living we would like to uh, impart for our citizens um, with such a constraint. Um, And and that standard of living um, must go through joules. Um, We must produce energy. We must harness power, uh, nuclear energy, um, some fossil fuels in the mix, um, perhaps some renewables. We are still believers that we should be investing in solar for a variety of reasons. Um, But yeah, uh, it's very clear that we are unserious if we think that we can just eliminate fossil fuels without going through the path of massive economic devastation for the median um, citizens uh, all over the world.
0: Uh, let me come to two things, and I do want to get on to food in a second and, and uh, that whole area, because you guys have been, uh, I call it pioneering in that work, warning of the dangers, and then the dangers became readily apparent. Uh, but I want to just uh, talk one about nuclear and get to that just for a second, and. You know, if you're going to close your eyes, uh, do you see a much more significant presence? Maybe not in North America, but I mean, I'm talking about the developments we've seen in other parts of the world, including China, India, uh, you know, Korea, the list goes on.
1: Yeah. So, China's, uh, you know, we like to say, watch what China does, not what they say. So, while they're happy to sell us their monopolies uh, around solar and, and wind um, for our use, um, they are rapidly building out some 150 nuclear reactors while also adding some you know, 270 gigawatts of coal power in the next few years, which is unthinkable. Um, they're going for baseload power because they understand physics. And they actually don't care about global warming. It's very clear. Um, John Kerry is not going to influence how many coal plants uh, China decides to build in the next few years. Um, and so China is uh, racing towards nuclear and coal. We would point to Ontario as a... Um, uh, as a as sort of an exception that proves the rule, Ontario did a very fine job of decarbonizing its grid, um, turning back on a bunch of can-do reactors. Um, some 90% of the electricity produced in Ontario today comes from carbon-free sources. Um, there is still more work to do. Um, the attempted um, infusion of intermittent solar and wind was a fiasco. Luckily, the population um, uh, uh, you know, took, took care of that at the ballot box in both 2018 and in the, and in the most recent election. Um, but uh, Ontario proves what's possible. They are the exception that proves the rule that nullifies the anti-nuclear stance of the uh, Malthusian uh, radical environmentalists who um, who are deeply anti-human at their core and don't like to admit it. Um, there is no path to a highly decarbonized economy that does not run right through nuclear power. Uh, and so um, the milestones that we are looking for when we talk to subscribers and our clients um, center around. Um, seriousness about nuclear power Um, and uh, even in the U.S. again I I would give Governor Gavin Newsom full credit for walking back from the edge and extending the life of Diablo Canyon. Um, We would now push and argue and say if keeping it is good wouldn't having five more of them be better Um, and it doesn't take but five Diablo Canyons to solve California's electricity crisis for a generation. Five Diablo Canyons is what? Let's, let's round up and call it $25 billion. Um, politicians in D.C. won't bend over and pick up $25 billion if it was lying on the sidewalk. This is a de minimis amount of money compared to how much we're wasting. Um, so this is clearly a choice. It's a political choice. Uh, the grift of ESG is irresistible, and the practicality of, of actually solving the problem uh, is not yet um, high on the radar of politicians
0: you know it's interesting that uh, obviously so much of this is is government directly related to government policy whether it's uh, saying in germany no fossil fuels uh, so only backup power uh, no nuclear at that point but no backup power for the renewables so we have to go to russia to have the gas uh, you know right around i mean we could keep going on and on how directly related it is but now i want to you know beyond that they make choices today that guarantees we're not solving the problem i mean uh, you know, there's enough, we could frack in Europe if they wanted to, you know, and and get natural gas, as you say, uh, we could institute nuclear power in, uh, you know, many areas uh, of the world, but especially as you say, in the US and in in, uh, Europe, it's amazing that I'm just saying that they're actually making choices that make this worse.
1: Yeah. um, But I don't believe they believe they're making things worse. So this is a sort of a point of differentiation between us and some people who think this is sort of. um, all on purpose uh, and part of some conspiracy of the um, World Economic Forum, for example. Um, we we acknowledge that those people exist and some of them may in fact be you know diabolical, um, but we still want to believe in um, and and there's insufficient evidence to reject the hypothesis that this is this is all born out of incompetence. Um, that explains the behavior in our view, and we don't want to live in a world where our leaders actually want less humans on the earth. Um, and so um this 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 literally comes from a multi-decade separation of you know when when ninety eight percent of the population worked on the farm, you had a visceral understanding of where food came from. Um, now less than two percent of the population works on the farm. And um, unfortunately, many in the newest generations think that food comes when you click a few buttons on a phone. Um, and And during times of abundance, um, you can get away with such thinking but not during times of shortages like we find ourselves today. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the view. And I think ultimately um, nothing um, sharpens the mind like a good crisis.
0: Well, and when speaking of food, they're certainly going to get a sharp mind then. And one of the things you guys wrote about um, a year ago, and, and, and before that had commented on, but, uh, you know, some excellent pieces a year ago talking about the relationships. Uh, and that's one of the things that Dunberg does so well is understanding the chemical uh, relationships uh, beyond that, and that's what I thought uh, was so needed in the discussion. Uh, natural gas, ammonia, urea, oh, fertilizer. Again, uh, Al, your coal example earlier—it was like this comes as a shock that if we say no to natural gas, we're saying no to nitrogen-based fertilizer.
1: Yeah. So one of our advantages is our experience in the industry, and um, we have sort of a molecular map of how the economy actually works. Um, And um, one of the reasons we started Doomburg was when I was an executive in industry, um, one of the differentiating features that drove um, my career was an ability to distill complexity into um, a form that non-scientists could understand uh, and understand in a way that could help them decide whether they should write a check to invest or to pass. And so um, we, much of the value we provided um, our non-scientific leaders uh, in the commodity sector was knowing when to pass. You know, something came across the desk and it just, it just you know, um, defied the laws of physics and it and immediately just sort of pops off the page as a, as a promote. Yeah, pass on that one. But when something is real or when something has consequences two and three steps um, down the road, our ability to articulate that uh, was highly valued. And we translated that skill uh, into the creation of Doomberg. And so um, it's not just about knowing how these things um, interconnect. It's about telling the story in a way that the non scientist can find accessible. Um, and when you do that, uh, it really resonates with people because people like to learn. Um, they like to know the truth. Um, and that's where I think the key brand ambition for Doomberg, um has really paid off for us and explains our growth. You know, our, our objective is that when you, Michael, get an email from Doonberg, the gut feeling we induce in you is, ooh, I get to read that. Um, and, and to the extent we've been able to achieve that, we think it's because we take the time to explain uh, to the non-scientific audience uh, the core elements of a scientific dilemma uh, in a way that is totally accessible to them.
0: Well, and I would say that's where you, you've you've absolutely, if that was a goal, you've succeeded in that goal. And I think that was uh, missing in the discussion about fertilizer, for example, or about, uh, you know, when you say no to natural gas, what are you actually saying no to, you know, down the road? And as you pointed out uh, early on, you're saying no to nitrogen-based fertilizer because you're saying no to ammonia. That's the kind of stuff that's so important. You also did a recent piece, uh, sorry, off the top of my head, you know, talking about the importance of uh, the refining process and diesel and the impact on Blue, but then the impact on trucking etc. Very understandable as your goal was, but also it really explained the significance there. And, uh, you know, everyone's allowed to have their issues. But when I consider millions of the people in the world who are on the precipice of starvation, and then to consciously make policy that is going to make that worse you know, again, others can say, I don't care about that. I happen to care about that. And that's why I thought the work that you were doing was so valuable. And uh, I don't see much change there. I mean, I'm not sitting here optimistically looking at the food situation as dramatically improving uh, for so many people living throughout the globe.
1: Yeah, we we sort of call this um, interconnecting, otherwise unrelated sectors. So um, as you mentioned, AdBlue, which is needed to run the diesel trucks, which is needed to move all of the goods and services uh, around our economy. AdBlue is basically just a solid form of ammonia, which is urea. Um, so we have connected the fertilizer market to um, the complex logistics of our supply chain. Um, when we burn ethanol um, in our automobiles, a 10% additive um, we are connecting the price of corn to the um, refining utilization rates in the oil and gas sector. When we um, mandate the use of so-called renewable diesel, you are directly connecting the price of soybeans, which is predominantly used in animal feed. So you're connecting the price of beef to the price of diesel. Um, And what happens in such circumstances as these markets become um, more interconnected um, these uh, uh, interconnected, in, interconnection points become tunnels through which contagion in one market um, bleeds into the other. Um, and this is all sort of out of this, what we think is a fallacy, which is anything that is renewable is quote unquote good. Um, of all of the ESG sort of um, pillars, renewable carbon content is the least uh, impactful on the underlying objective, which is to sort of preserve as much of nature as we can and to make Earth as habitable as possible for humans and animals and nature alike. Um, renewable carbon content is, is, the, is among the silliest um, of, of, of the pillars of the ESG movement. And, and so um, just, just because you can make a drop in diesel substitute from soybeans does not mean that you should, but because renewable is good, um, all negative consequences of that are ignored. And the positive attributes of it are blown out of all proportion. Um, and so that's just one example of the type of writing that we do. But um, and, and people don't realize it. it comes as a shock to people um, when you sort of lay this out. So that that's sort of the, the fun part of it is when people learn something, they're willing to commit to learning more. And um, those are the types of people we've been able to convert into subscribers.
0: Well, I, I let me put this in though to a, a plug here because uh, that's the reason I became a subscriber. And I don't say that lightly. I read way too much. I don't uh, you have to know Doomberg, I have no life you know, I just read and research. I'm the <laughs> dullest guy around. But uh, again, it was exactly that kind of uh, ability that you write about that makes those connections, that you go further down the road. The anticipation is, is great. The looking forward is great, but then making those connections. And as I say, I can give you lots of examples of what you've done, uh, but they're of such significance though, at this point. I mean, we're talking about global future here. And as I say, I'm really worried about food worried about fertilizer worried about you know simple things like that you've written about but you know uh, if you're in the third world you pay cash for your fertilizer if there's no credit facilities sitting there that maybe i could expand so presto and as i say having lived in india uh you know that therefore i don't use fertilizer therefore my crop yield dropped as they've the disastrous examples in sri lanka where we have measurable examples of, of switching out. And uh, so I'm just saying, that's why I became a subscriber. It's, it's that understanding of the interconnectedness and the sort of chemical processes that go that were, uh, that you guys made understandable. So I, uh, I, as I say, I don't say that lightly when I say I subscribe to something. Um, I
1: really appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it's, it, it's great stuff. So let's look forward for a second here. Uh, and I know, you guys, uh, you know, advise corporations, obviously do stuff for individuals, you don't make specific investment uh, recommendations, but maybe on the broad brush, looking at, uh, you know, it seems to me that natural gas has a real future, (laughs) if you know what I mean, or at least companies that produce it, and maybe to a lesser extent, the infrastructure around it, but the companies that produce it, uh, because it would seem to me that we're going to get a more global market in natural gas, not just sort of local as we have today, but as we improve LNG, as we have the export facilities to do that and, uh, and receive it, uh, I see sort of a, an upward movement in natural gas. I mean, and correct me if you
1: don't agree, please. Yeah. Especially if you're talking Canadian natural gas, uh, yeah. versus, you know, us natural gas, so Canadian natural gas is stranded right now. Um, it has no, no offtake, no place to put it because as you know, and as we've explained, um, the handling of natural gas is its big Achilles heel uh, because it is a gas. And, um, and so we envision in the long run, um, thermodynamically, there must exist an equilibrium state where the price of natural gas all around the world trades within a band. And that band, the thickness of that band is the logistics costs of moving it around. Um, what does that mean? That means that um, in the long run, Canadian and and US natural gas needs to trade much higher Um, and um, European and and Asian natural gas needs to trade much lower Um, it cannot be that the same thing sells for a tenfold difference in price in different parts of the world indefinitely the forces of arbitrage are powerful um the barriers to collapse that arbitrage are large Um, but they are doable. They require no technical innovations. And so there will be regions of the world that invest in the technology needed um, to to invest in the deployment of the pre-existing technology um, that is needed to close that arbitrage. You can't have natural gas in Canada at $5 per million BTU and natural gas in Europe swinging between $60 and $100 per million BTU uh, indefinitely. Um, And for Trudeau to say he cannot conceive of a business case for the construction of LNG export terminals, um, I, I think retweeted. And again, full disclosure, um, we are amongst Trudeau's harshest critics. <laughs> um, I could think of a person, I can't think of a person less qualified to judge the the, the suitability of a business case than, than Justin Trudeau. Um, and his uh, comments in this regard are, are proof positive uh, that our assessment is correct. So yeah, in the long run, uh, we are bullish. The um, the, sort of the, the bid end of the natural gas arbitrage embarrass the ask end of that spread.
0: Uh, it's just, it's just uh, interesting that uh, one of the shocking stats I've done uh, talks about we had five LNG uh, proposals on the East Coast. One was cancelled uh, two weeks before the invasion. We had 13 cancelled on the uh, West Coast. Uh, yeah, talk about business opportunity lost, especially for the future, and that's my point. Is that, not, you know, going forward, our our gas, like much of our oil, is held hostage to one market, and uh, the amount of money that has been foregone uh, in eco- uh, economic growth and uh, government revenues too, it's just been as- astronomical. We're yeah. we're number we're number one,
1: <laughs> you know, on
0: that scale. Uh, look,
1: let's let's be very clear: whether it's Coke and coal natural gas, oil, agricultural goods, fertilizer, Canada has the potential to be an energy superpower. And we have argued forcefully on Twitter spaces where some of the sort of more um, deeper critics of Canada, and Canada's a bankrupt country, and so Canada is amongst the richest countries on the planet. It's relatively small population. Uh, Let's put it this way, if you put Alberta out to bid, On the open market um, you would get many many trillions of dollars uh, to buy alberta Uh, canada is a deeply wealthy place with exceptional institutions unbelievable education system very strong social fabric and social network Um, even justin trudeau won't be able to irreparably ruin canada Uh, so if you pushed us uh, we are deeply bullish on the medium and long-term prospects for canada Um, but canada is missing an extraordinary, an extraordinarily opportunity, uh, uh, an extraordinary opportunity to, to help abate a crisis while simultaneously securing, um, you know, its, its financial strength uh, for a generation, um, positioning the next generation of Canadians, um, you know, even nuclear power um, can do the whole infrastructure. Canada has everything it needs, and that's the type of thing that can't be ruined by one person. So, um, you know, deep down, I'm deeply optimistic on Canada.
0: Well that's a great place to end off, but I want to also make sure everyone understands all you have to do is go to Doomburg, Doomberg D-O-O-M-Berg B-E-R-G dot substack.com, com, or go to uh, Doonberg T put the T on the end for Twitter, Doomberg T, uh, for Twitter, uh, daily updates many times, uh, throughout the week. And, uh, Doonberg, I got to say thank you. And, uh, just because, uh, you know, t- just to put you on the spot, we've got to uh, visit again in the near future.
1: Anytime. It was a real pleasure, Michael, and, uh, congrats on the success of your show. And, and it was a real pleasure.
0: Great stuff. Thank you.